Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, what's new in your world? Hey, Chris. Uh, There's a couple new things in my world. So, one of them, I wanted to talk about the fact that being pregnant is hard. Uh, I feel like this is probably a known thing, but... uh, I feel like I don't hear it talked about as much as I'd really like, especially in sort of like a professional context. And so I just wanted to share for anyone else that may be listening, if you're also pregnant, this this is hard. And I also really appreciate my team like going through the first trimester is typically where then you experience a lot of like morning sickness and fatigue. And I had all of that. And so I was at the point that I most of my days, I didn't even start till about noon. And even some days starting at noon was a struggle. And thankfully, the ThoughtBot client that I'm working with, they are most of the teams on West Coast hours. So that worked out pretty well. But I even shared a post internally and was like, hey, I'm not doing great in the mornings. And so I really can't facilitate any morning meetings. I can't be part of like some of the hiring intros that we do because we like to have a team lead provide a welcoming and then closing for anyone that's coming for interview day. I couldn't do those since those normally happen around like 9am for Eastern time. And everybody was super supportive of it. So I really appreciate all of ThoughtBot and my managers and team being so great about this. Also, the client team, they're wonderful. It turns out growing a little human, I'm learning how how hard it is and uh, working full time. It's it's an interesting challenge. Oh, and as part of that appreciation, because so there's just not a lot of women that I've worked with. This may be one of those symptoms of being in tech where one, I haven't worked with tons of women. And then two, working with a woman who is also pregnant and going through that as well. So it's uh, been a little bit isolating in that experience. But there is someone that I follow on Twitter, Emma Boston. She's also one of the co-hosts for the Ladybug podcast. And she has been just sharing some of her like, I am two months sleep deprived. She's she's had her had her baby now. And she is sharing some of that journey. And I really appreciate people who just share that journey and what they're going through, because then it helps normalize it for me in terms of what I'm feeling. I hope this helps normalize it for anybody else that might be listening too. I certainly can't speak to the specifics of being pregnant, but I I, uh, I do think it's wonderful for you to use this space that we have here to try and forward that along and say, you know, what your experience is like and share that with folks and hopefully make it a little bit better for everyone else out there. Uh, also, you know, you snuck in a sneaky pro tip there, which is work on the East Coast and have a West Coast team. Like that just sounds like the obvious correct way to go about this. That has worked out really well and been very helpful for me. I'm already not a great morning person. I've tried. I've really, I've really strived at times to be a morning person because I just have this idea in my head, like morning people get more stuff done. I don't think that's true. But I just have that idea. And I'm not 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 the world's best morning person. So it has worked out for many reasons. But yeah, especially in helping me get through that first trimester and also just supporting family and other things that are going on. Oh, I also learned a uh, pro tip about Twitter. This is going to seem totally random, but it was relevant when I was searching for stuff on Twitter (laughs) that was related to tech and pregnancy. Uh, But I learned because I wanted to be able to search for something that someone that I follow what they said, but I couldn't remember who said it. And so I found that in the search bar, I can add filter colon and then follows. So you can have your search term, like if you're looking for cake or pregnancy or sleep deprived, and then look for uh, filter colon follows. And then that will filter the search results to everybody that you follow. I imagine that probably works for followers too, but I haven't tried it. 
Oh, I like the I like the left turn you took us on there, but still keeping it connected. Uh, on the topic of Twitter search, uh, they apparently have a very powerful search, but it's also hidden and like you got to know the the specific syntax and whatnot. But there is a wonderful project by Sean Wang, uh, aka Swix, on the internet called BetterTwitter.netlify.com is the URL for it. Uh, we'll share a link to his tweet introducing it. Uh, but it's a really wonderful tool that just provides a UI for all of these different filters and configurations and. Uh, both makes discoverability that much better and then also makes it easy to just compose one of these uh, searches and use that. The other thing that I'll recommend is a, uh, I think it's a, pl- a Chrome plugin, I'm guessing is what I'm working with here, like browser extension, but it's called Twemex, T-W-E-M-E-X. Uh, and it makes their, there's a sidebar in Twitter now, which just seems wonderful and useful. So like, as I'm looking at a Swix post here on, or a tweet as they're called on Twitter, because I know the vernacular, uh, there's a sidebar, which is specific to Sean Wang. And there's a search at the top, so I can search within it, but it's just finding their most popular tweets and putting that in a sidebar. It's a very useful contextual addition to Twitter that I found just awesome. So that combination of things has made my Twitter experience uh, much better. So yeah, we'll, we'll have show notes for both of those as well. Nice. I did not know about those. This may cause someone to laugh at me because maybe it's easier than I think. But I can never remember that advanced search that Twitter does offer. I have to search it every time. I just go to Google and I'm like advanced Twitter search and then it brings up a site for me and then I use that. It's the one that Twitter does provide. But yeah, from the normal UI, I don't know how to get there. It's maybe like I haven't tried hard it. enough. Maybe it's hidden. Yeah, <laughs> one of those. <laughs> it's very costly. They have to like map reduce the entire internet in order to make that search work. So they're like, well, what if we hide it? Because it's like 50 cents per query. And so maybe we shouldn't you know, promote this too much. And let's just live in the moment, everybody. Let's just uh, swim in the Twitter stream rather than look back at the history. I make guesses about the universe now. <laughs> On a, a different note, I also discovered at ThoughtBot and our all our variety of Slack channels, we have a yelling channel, and I had not used it before. I had not hung out in there before. It's a delightful channel. It's a place that you just go and you type in all caps. You can yell about anything that you would like to, and I specifically needed to yell about Garrett, which is the replacement or the alternative that we're using for like GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket or any of those services. So we're using Garrett and I've been working to feel comfortable with like the UI and then be able to review CRs and things like that. My vernacular is also changing because um, my team refers to them as change requests instead of pull requests. So I'm floating back and forth between CRs and PRs. And because I'm in Garrett world, I missed some of the updates that GitHub made to their pull request review screen. And so then I happened to hop in GitHub one day and I saw it and I was like, what is this? So that was novel. But going back to yelling, I needed to yell about Garrett because I have not found a way to collaborate with someone who has already pushed up changes. I have found ways that I can pull their changes, which then took a little while. I found it in a sneaky little tab called download. I didn't expect it to be there, but then it's actual like snippets as to then it's like run this in your terminal and this is then how you pull down the changes. And I'm like, okay. So I did that, but I can't push to their existing changes because then I get like, well, you're not the owner, so we're going to block you, which is like, cool, cool, cool. Okay, I kind of get that because you don't want me messing up somebody else's content or something that they've done. But I really, really, really want to collaborate with this person. And we're trying to do something together and you were blocking me. And so I had to go to the yelling channel and I felt better. And I'm yelling again, maybe. (laughs) Maybe I don't feel that great because I'm getting angry again talking about it. You vented a little into the yelling channel, maybe not everything, though. Yeah, uh, it finds I, I still have more to vent because uh, it's it's just it's made life hard. Every time I wanted to 
push up a change or pull down someone else's changes, there's now all these uh, CRs that then I just have to go and abandon, uh, which is then the the other the terminology for then essentially closing it and ignoring it. You so I'm constantly going through and if I do want to pull in changes or collaborate. Then there's a flow of either where I abandon mine or I pull in their changes, but then I have to squash everything because if you push up multiple commits to Garrett, it's going to split those commits into different CRs. Don't like that. Uh, so there's there's a couple things that have been pain points. And uh, yeah, so plus one for yelling channels. Let people get it out. Okay, so definitely some feelings that you are working through here. Uh, I'm happy <laughs> I'm happy to work together as a team to get through some of them. One thing that I want to touch on is you you very quickly hinted at GitHub's got a bunch of new things that are cool. I want to talk about those. Uh, but I, I, want to, I want to touch on an anecdote. Uh, you talked about pushing something up to someone else's branch. So you're like, oh, you know, I, I made some changes locally and then I'm going to push them up. I had a an interesting experience once where I was interacting with another developer. I had done some code review. They weren't quite understanding where I was at. They had a lot of questions. And finally, I said, you know what? This will just be easier. Here, I pushed up a commit to your branch. So now you can see what I'm talking about. And I thought of this as a very innocuous act, but it was not interpreted that way. Uh, that individual interpreted it in a very um, aggressive sort of... It was not taken well. And I think part of that was related to, I think of Git commits as just these little ephemeral things. Throw it out, feel free. Uh, This is just the easiest way for me to communicate this change in the context of the work that you're doing. I thought I was doing a nice favor thing here. That was not how it went. We had to have, we had a good conversation after it got to the heart of, you know, sort of where we both were emotionally on this thing. It was interesting, the interaction of emotion and tech. It's always interesting. But as a result, I'm very, very careful with that now. Uh, I do think it's a great way, as long as I've sort of gotten buy-in from the person beforehand, but I will always spot check, be like, hey, uh, just to confirm, I think I, I can just push up a commit to your branch, but are you are you okay with that? Is that fine with you? Uh, so I've become very, very cautious with that. Yeah, that feels like one of those painful moments where it, it highlights that the people that you work with, that you are accustomed to having a certain level of trust or default trust with those individuals, and then working with someone else that they they don't have that where like the cup is half full in terms of that trust or that this person means well kind of feelings towards a colleague or towards someone that they're working with. So it totally makes sense that it's always good to check just to be like, hey, I'd love to push up some changes to your branch. Is that cool? And then once you've established that, then that just makes it easier. But I, I do remember that happening. And yeah, that that was a, a bit painful and, and shocking because we didn't see that coming and then learned from it. I do think it's an important thing to learn, though, because for me, in that moment, this was this sort of throwaway uh, operation that I, I thought almost nothing of. But then another individual interpreted it in a very different way. And that can happen. That can happen across tons of different things. And I don't even want to live in the idealized world where it's just tech. We're just pushing around zeros and ones. There's no human to this. But no, I actually believe it's a deeply human thing that we're doing here. Uh, it's our job to teach the computers to be a little closer to us humans or something like that. And so it was a really pointed sort of clarification of that for me, where it was this thing that I didn't I didn't even think once about it, unless twice, and yet someone else interpreted it in such a different way. So it was, it was a useful learning uh, situation for me. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's a really wise default to have to, to check in with people before assuming that they'll be comfortable with something that we're comfortable with. Indeed. But uh, shifting back to what you mentioned of the GitHub, a bunch of new stuff came in GitHub and you were super excited about it. And then you went on to <laughs> say other things about another system. But let's talk about the great things in GitHub. What uh, What are the particular ones that have caught your eye? I've seen some, but I'm intrigued. Let's compare notes. 
Uh, so it's uh, this is one of those where I, I hadn't seen GitHub in quite a while. And then I hopped in and I, I was like, this is different. But some of the things that did stand out to me right away is that on the left hand side, I can see all of the files that have been changed. And so that's a really nice tree where I just immediately know because that was one of the things that I often did going to a PR is that I would see what files are involved in this change because it, it was just a nice overview of like, what part of the applications am I walking through? Are there tests for this? Have they altered or added test? And so I really like that about it. Um, I'm sure there's other stuff, but that is the main thing that stood out to me. How about you? Yeah, that that uh, sidebar file tree is very, very nice, which I find surprising because I don't use a file tree in my editor. I only do fuzzy finding to jump to files. But I think there's something about like, Whenever GitHub had the file list, these are all the files that are changed. I'm like, this is just noise. I can't look at this and get anything out of it. But the file tree is so much more, there's a shape to it that my brain can sort of pattern match on. And it's just a, a much uh, a much more discoverable way to like observe that information. So I've, I've really loved that. That, that was a wonderful one. Um, the other one that I was surprised by is GitHub sort of semantic code analysis stuff has gotten much, much better over time. Subtly, I didn't even notice this happening, but I was uh, discussing something with someone today and we were looking at it on GitHub and then I just happened to like click on an identifier and it popped up a little thing that says, oh, do you want to hop to the references or the definition of this? I was like, that is what I want to do. And so I hopped to the definition, hopped to the definition of another thing and was just jumping around in the code in a way that I didn't know was available. So that was really neat. But then also I was in a pull request at one point and someone was writing a spec and they had introduced a helper, uh, just like stub something at the bottom of a given spec file. It's like, I feel like we have this one already. And I just clicked on the identifier. I think it might've actually been a matcher in our specs. It was like, have alert. And I was like, oh, I feel like we have this one, a uh, matcher specific to flash message alerts on the page. And I clicked on it and GitHub provided me a nice little inline dialogue that showed me all of the definitions of have alert, which I think we were up to like four of them at that point. So it had been copied and pasted across a couple different files, which I think is totally fine and a great way to start. But they were very similar implementations. And I was like, oh, uh, looks like we actually already have this in a couple places. Maybe we clean it up and extract it to a common spec support thing. And ta-da. And I was able to do all of that from the GitHub pull request UI. And I was like, this is awesome. So uh, kudos to the GitHub team for doing some nifty stuff. Also, can I get into the merge queue? Thank you. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> that is very cool. I didn't know I could do that from the pull request uh, screen. I've seen it where like, if I'm browsing code, that then I can see a snippet of where everything's defined and then go there. But I hadn't seen that from the, the pull request. I did find the change logs for GitHub that talk about the introduction of having the tree. So we'll be sure to include a, a link in the show notes for that too. But yes, uh, thank you for letting me use our podcast as a yelling channel. Uh, that's been delightful. Hey, friends. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is an application performance monitoring tool that's designed to help developers find and fix performance issues quickly. With an intuitive user interface, Scout will tie bottlenecks to source code so you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat. Scout also recently implemented external service monitoring, adding even more granularity when it comes to HTTP requests and API calls. So give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. To learn more, visit scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. 
That's scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. Uh, well, speaking of podcasts, actually, uh, there was an interesting thing that happened where the CEO of Sagewell Financial, the company of which I am the CTO of, uh, Sam Zimmerman is his name, and he went on the Giant Robots podcast with Chad uh, a couple weeks ago. So that is now available. We'll link to that in the show notes. Um, I'll be honest, it was a very interesting experience for me. I listened to portions of it. For being honest, I searched for my name in the transcript and it showed up. I was like, okay, that's cool. Uh, and it was interesting to hear two different individuals that I've worked with either in the past or currently talking about it. But then also for anyone that's been interested in uh, what I'm building over at Sagewell Financial, and wants to hear it from someone who can probably do a much better job of pitching and describing the problem space that we're working in and all of the fun challenges that we have uh, and that we're hopefully living up to and building something very interesting. I think Sam does a really fantastic job of that. That's the reason I'm at the company, frankly. So uh, yeah, if anyone wants to hear a little bit more about that, that is a very interesting episode. Uh, that was a little weird for me to listen to personally, but I think everybody else will probably have a normal experience listening to it because they're not the CTO of the company. Um, so that's one thing. But moving on, I uh, I feel like today is going to be a grab bag episode or a tapas episode. Lots of small plates, as uh, as we were discussing as we were prepping for this episode. Uh, but to share one little thing that happened, um, I've been a little more removed from the code of late, something that we've talked about on and off in previous episodes. Um, thankfully, I have a wonderful team that's doing an absolutely fantastic job, uh, moving very rapidly through features and bug fixes and all of the sort of things. But also, I'm just not as involved even in code review at this point. And so I saw one that snuck through today that uh, I, I'm going to be honest, I had an emotional reaction to. I've talked myself down. We're fine now. But uh, the team collectively made the decision to move from a line length of 80 characters to a line length of 120 characters. And oh, I had some feelings. And did, I immediately, did you fire everybody? No. I immediately <laughs> said, doesn't really matter. This is the whole conversation around... Uh, auto formatting tools is like we're just taking the decision away i personally am a fan of the smaller line length because i like to have multiple files open left to right that is my reason for it but that's my reason other a collective of the developers that are frankly working more in the code than i am at this point they decided this was meaningful it was a thing that we could automate a thing that we can you know it's not a thing that we have to manage so i was like cool there we go the one thing that i did follow up on i was like okay y'all snuck this one in it's fine i'm fine with it I feel fine. Everything's fine. But uh, let's add that to the git blame ignore revs file, which is a useful thing to know about because otherwise we have a handful of different changes like this where we upgrade prettier and suddenly the manner in which it formats the files changes. So we have to reformat everything at once. And this magical file that exists in git to say, hey, ignore this revision because it is not relevant to the semantic history of the of the app. Uh, and so it makes that it also takes that decision out of the consideration like, well, uh, yeah, should we reformat or not? Because then it'll be noisy. Like that magical file takes that decision away. And so I love that. I so love the idea because you took vacation recently twice. So I love the idea if there was like a little coup and people were <laughs> plotting and they're like, wow, Chris is on vacation. <laughs> we're going to merge this change <laughs> that changes the character line. And yeah, that brings me joy. Um, well, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you're working through it. Uh, sounds like we're both working through some hard emotional stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Life's tricky is all I'm going to say. <laughs> I am curious uh, what prompted sort of like the 80 characters versus 120. Like I this is one of those areas that's like, yeah, I have my default preference, like you said, but I'm I'm more intrigued just when people are interested in changing it and kind of what goes with it. So do you remember like one of the reasons that 120 just sort of suited their preferences better? Frankly, again, I was not super involved in the discussion or what led them to it. <laughs> my guess 
is 120 is used i think like 80 is a pretty common one i think 120 is another of the common ones so i think it's just sort of a thing that exists out there in the mindshare but also my guess is they made the switch to 120 and then reformatted a few files that had like ah this is like 85 characters and that's annoying what does it look like if we bump it up and so 120 provided a meaningful change of like this is a thing that splits to four lines if we have an 80 character thing or it's one line if it's 120 characters which is a surprising thing to say but that's actually the way it plays out in certain cases because the way prettier wool break lines isn't just put stuff on the next line always it's you know it's got to break across multiple lines actually all right now we're back in opinion space i have a strong one i oh, this is the bike uh, shed we can live up this to that is name. <laughs> i'm saying this is what so i do want an additional configuration in prettier ruby this is the thing that i'll say maybe i can chase down kevin newton uh see if he's open to this but when prettier does break a method call with arguments going into it but no parens on that method call and it breaks that to multiple lines it does the like dangling indent thing which i do not like i find it distasteful i find it noisy the shape of the code like i'm a big fan of the squint test uh i know that from sandy metz i believe or maybe it's abdi grim um i associate it with both of them in my mind but it's just a way to look at the code and you kind of squint and you see the shape of it and it tells you something and when the lines break in that weird way and you have these arbitrary dangling indents the shape of the code is broken up and I don't feel so strongly. I actually regularly stop myself from commenting and pull requests on this because it's very easy. All you need to do is add explicit parens and then Prettier will wrap the line in what I believe is a much more aesthetically pleasing, concise, consistent, lots of other good adjectives here that are definitely just my preferences and not facts about the world. But uh, so what I want is prettier. Hey, if you're gonna break this line uh, across multiple lines, insert the parens. Parens are no longer optional if we're breaking across multiple lines. Parens are only optional in a within a given line. So if we're not breaking across lines, I want that configuration because this is now one of those things where like I could comment on this, and if they added the optional parens, then prettier would reform it in a different way. And I kind of want my auto formatter to like don't don't give me ways to do stuff like constrain me more, but also within the constraints of the preferences that I have, please thank you. I love all the varying levels there of <laughs> how much you want a thing, but you know it's also very personal to you and how you're you're walking that line and hopping back and forth on each side. I also love the idea, you know, we have the, the idea of clean code. I really want something that's called distasteful code now, where we just give examples of distasteful code. Yes. Well, I um, I wish you good luck in, in your journey. <laughs> and how this goes and, and how you continue to battle. I also appreciate that you mentioned when you're reviewing code, how you know it's something that you really want, but you will refrain from commenting on that. I appreciate, I just appreciate when people have that filter to recognize like, is this valuable? Is it important? Or like you said, how can we just make this more the default? So then we don't even have to talk about it and then lean into whatever the default the team goes with. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate that because frankly, it's been very difficult. I do have something I want to yell about, but in a very positive way, uh, a pranting as we determined, or, you know, raving the actual real term that wonderful listeners pointed out to us. Prant for life. That's my stance. 
this one, uh, we had a magic show uh, at ThoughtBot. It was all remote, but the wonderful Greg Tobo, the magician, performed a magic show for us where we all showed up on Zoom and it was interactive and it was delightful and it was so much fun. And so if you need something uh, fun for your team that you just want to bring folks together, highly recommend. I had no idea I was going to enjoy a magic show this much, but it was a lot of fun. So be sure to include some links in the show notes in case that interests anyone. But yeah, magic. I'm doing jazz hands. People can't see it, but magic. I like how you referred earlier saying that today is more of like a tapas episode. And I'm reeling that all of my tapas are related to being pregnant, yelling and magic shows. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> but on that note, uh, what else is on your tapas plate? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, a nice positive one that came into the world. Uh, always like when we get those. So uh, this is interesting because I was actually looking back at the history and I had Gary Bernhardt on the bike shed back in episode 269. We'll include a link in the show notes. Uh, but we talked a bunch about various things, including TypeScript. And I was lamenting what I saw as a pretty big edge case in TypeScript. So the goal of TypeScript is like, all right, JavaScript exists. This is true. What can we do on top of that? Let's not fundamentally change it, but let's build a type system on top of it and try and make it so that we can enforce correctness, but understand that JavaScript is a highly dynamic language and that we don't want to overconstrain and that we've got to sort of meet it where it is. And so one of the design decisions early on with TypeScript is if you have an array and you say that array is like it's an array of integers. So you have typed that array to be this is an array of int or it would be an array of number in JavaScript because JavaScript doesn't have integers, they only have numbers. Uh, cool, <laughs> setting aside other JavaScript foibles here, uh, you have an array of numbers. And so if you use element access to say like, uh, say the name of array is array of nums, and then use brackets and you say zero. So get me the first element of that array. TypeScript will infer the type of that to be a number. Of course it's a number, right? You got an array of numbers, you take a number out of it, of course you're gonna have a number. Except, you know what's also an array of numbers? an empty array. Well, of course. Uh, so there's no way for TypeScript because that's a runtime thing, whether or not the array is full of things or not. Or imagine you get the third element from the array. Well, that JavaScript will either return you the third element, which indeed is a number, or undefined because there's no third element in this array. So that is an unfortunate but very understandable edge case that TypeScript was like, listen, here, this is how JavaScript works. So we're not gonna, like, frankly, we don't think the people embracing TypeScript and bringing it into their world would accept this amount of noise because this is everywhere. This, anytime you interact with an array, you are going to run into this, this sort of uncertainty of, did I actually get the thing? And everyone's like, yeah, no, I, I know how many things are in the array that I'm working with. Uh, spoiler, you maybe don't, is the answer. And so we ran into this edge case in our code base. Uh, we were accessing an element, but we were getting, TypeScript was telling us, yes, definitively, you have an object of that type because you just got it out of an array, which is an array of that type, but we did not. We had undefined. And so we had, under, you know, blah is not a method on undefined or whatever that classic JavaScript uh, runtime error is. And it was like, well, that's very sad, but... Now we get to the fun part of the story. TypeScript as a version 4.1, which came out like the week that I recorded with Gary Bernhardt, which was interesting to look at the timeline here. TypeScript has added a new configuration, so a new strictness dial that you can configure in your tsconfig called no unchecked indexed access. So if you have an array and you are getting an element out of it by index, 
TypeScript will say, hey, uh, you got to check if that's undefined, because to be clear, very much could be undefined. And I was so happy to find this. We turned it on in our code base. It found the error in the place that we actually had an error. And then it found a few others that uh, I think probably had errored at some times. But it was just one of those, for me, very nice things to be able to dial up the strictness and enforce correctness within our code base. Uh, and so I was very happy about it. Other folks may say that seems like too much work. And, you know, I, I get that. I get that take. Uh, I'm definitely on the side of uh, I'm willing to go through the effort to have enforced correctness. But, you know, it's a choice. Yeah, that's that's thoughtful. I like that. How you said you can dial up the strictness. So then as you are introducing TypeScript, then people have that option. It, there is there's that argument there in the back of my head that's like, well, if you're introducing types, then you want to start more strict because then you're just creating problems for yourself down the road. But I also understand that that can make things uh, very difficult to then introduce it to teams and existing code bases. So that seems like a really nice addition where then people can say, yeah, no, I, I really want the strictness. This is why I'm here. And then they can turn that on. I imagine. So TypeScript in the configuration has strict mode. So you say strict true. And that is a moving target with each new version of TypeScript. But it's their sort of uh, blessed set of things that are part of strict. But apparently this one's not in it. So now I'm like, wait. Can I have a stricter? Can I have a strictest option? Can I have dial it to 11, please? Uh, really rough me up and make sure my code is correct. Um, but it is the sort of thing like when we turn any of these on, it will find things in our code base. Some of them we have to appease the compiler, even though we know the code to be correct. But the code is not provably correct as it sits in our file. So I am, again, happy to happy to make that exchange. And I like that TypeScript as a project gives us configurability. But again, I am on team, where's the strictest button? I would like to push that as hard as I can and live that life. Yeah, I like that phrasing that you just said about provably correct. That's nice. That's the world I want to live in. Everything you own in a box to the left, which is provably correct. <laughs> That's how that song goes. Yeah. Uh, this is a reference to move uh, errors to the left, which I think I've referenced before. But now that I'm just referencing Beyonce and not the actual article, it's probably worth referencing the article. But the idea of like, if a user hits you an error, that's not great. So let's move it back to QA. That's a little further to the left in sort of the timeline. But what if we could move it to uh, an automated test in CI? But what if we could move it into your editor? What if we could move it even further to the left? And so a type system tends to be sort of very far ratcheted up to the left. It's as early as possible that you can catch these. So again, to reference uh, Beyonce, everything you own in a box to the left everything you own in a box to the left thank you for doing the needful work there <laughs> <laughs> and now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor studio 3t when you're developing applications it can often be a chore to work with your underlying data studio 3t equips you with a complete set of tools to work with mongodb data from building queries with drag and drop to creating complex aggregation pipelines studio 3t makes it easy and now there's Studio 3T Free, a free edition of Studio 3T, which delivers an essential core of tools. This means you can get started for free with Studio 3T Free, and when you're ready, you can upgrade and enjoy even more features through Studio 3T Pro and Studio 3T Ultimate. The different editions unlock more tools and additional integrations with MongoDB, SQL, Oracle, and Sybase. You can start today by downloading Studio 3T Free, which also includes a 30-day free trial of all the features of Studio 3T Ultimate, so you can try out some of the enterprise features as well. No credit card required. To start your trial, head to studio3t.com forward slash free. That's studio3t.com forward slash free. I have a question for you that I'd really love to get your opinion on because I 
myself am waffling back and forth where someone brought up some really great points about a concern or just question they had brought up around testing and I-18N specifically. And I, I agree with the things that they're saying, but yet there's also a part of me that doesn't. And so I'm just, I'm a Stephanie divided. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out where I stand on this. So let me dive in and give you some context. I'm going to share the statement slash question that they had asked. So here we go. One of my priorities has been I should be able to review a test without having to reference any other code. References to I-18N means that I have to go over to GAML and make sure the right keys have the right values, and that seems error prone. In some cases, a lack of a hit in the YAML defers to defaults. If the intent is to override the name of a model attribute in error messages and it is coded incorrectly, the code fails silently without translating and uses the humanized attribute name, and that would go undetected. If libraries change structure, it might also fail silently as well. So to me, the only fail-safe way is to be fully explicit in test. So this goes with the idea that if you're writing tests and then you're testing text that's on the screen or perhaps in an email, that you're actually going to assert against that string that is shown to the user instead of referencing the I-18N keys. And then that also backs up this person's idea that you really want to not have to jump around. If you're reading a test, everything you really need to know about that test should live very close by. And I, I really agree with that initial statement. I want everything that's very close to the test, especially if it's anywhere in that expectation line, I really want it close. So I can understand uh, what's the expectation, what what's under test, what are the inputs, what's the expected outcome. So I, I wholeheartedly support that idea, but yet I am in the camp that I then will use YAML keys instead of providing that exact string because I do look at I18N as a helpful abstraction and I want to trust that I18N is doing its job. And so that way I don't have to provide that string that's there because then we're also choosing, okay, well, which language are we gonna always use for our test? So this is the part where I feel divided. Uh, so I'm going to walk you through some of the reasons that I really support this idea and other reasons that I still use the I-18N keys and then get your take on it. So there is a part of me that when I'm using the I-18N YAML keys, it does make me sad because it reduces the readability and test. Sometimes the keys are really well named where maybe it's a mailer dot welcome message. And I'm like, okay, I, I understand that the gist, I don't need to go see the actual string. I also think they highlighted a really good use case where if you're overriding behavior and it could default to something else, your test is still going to pass and you don't actually know. So I could see the use case there where you, if you are overriding, then you want to be explicit about the string that you expect back. I also think there's some I-18N messages that are fairly complex and where then I really would like to see the string. So if you are formatting a date or a time or you're passing in just a lot of variables, then there's a chance that I do want to see how did that actually get generated for the person who's going to be reading it versus just maybe it's garbage text that came out. And I want to validate that the message that we think we're crafting is actually the one that the user is going to see. The case against actually being explicit, my biggest one is because then I do see I18N as a helpful abstraction and I want to trust this abstraction that it's doing its job and it's doing it well. Because then if I do use explicit strings, it makes me sad if I change text from like hello to welcome and now I have a failing test. I don't like that idea either. So I am, I'm torn between these two worlds of it is very nice to have everything that you need in a test to be able to understand what is the expectation. But then I also lean into this abstraction and reference the I-18N keys. So Chris, with all of that, that was a bit of a whirlwind. What are your thoughts? How do you test this stuff? 
Uh, honestly, I'm surprised that you've got that much division in, in your own answer, because for me, this is very obvious. There's one. No, I'm kidding. This is obviously complicated. Uh, similar to you, I think I'm going to have to give a grab bag of answers because it's there's I, I don't have a singular thought of like it is concretely this or that. I tend to go for explicit strings and tests all the way to so like the readability of a test and the conciseness of a test is interesting. I will often see developers extract, say they're creating a user with a specific email, and then they log in with that email later, and then they expect something else. And so like the email is referenced a few times, and they'll extract that into a variable called email. And I personally will tend to not do that. I will inline the literal string like user at example.com, and I'll do it in a few places. And I'm fine with that duplication because I like the readability of any given line that you're reading. So I will make that trade off within tests. Uh, this is the thing I think we've talked about before, but the idea of uh, dry in tests is like, uh, I want to be careful applying that idea. Don't repeat yourself to break apart the acronym. Those abstractions are, I will use them less in tests. And so I want the explicitness. I want the readability. I want to tell a little story. All of that feels true. That said, to flip it around, one of the things that I'm hearing, so I think I'm hearing a part of this that is around, well, we can fail silently and because we fail symmetrically in both the implementation and our test, then an assertion may actually match even though it's matching on a fallback. I think that's a configurable thing. I would actually want my test to raise if I'm referencing an IETN key that is not defined. Now, granted, that's different for languages, and maybe this becomes a more complex story of like in production in a different locale, it will fail because we don't have 100% parity across all our locale files. But fundamentally, I want to make sure that at least exists in our base, which I think typically would be ENUS as the locale. I want to make sure all keys are looked up and found, and it's an error otherwise in our test. So that that's a feeling. But am I, am I misunderstanding that part of the story or, or how that configuration typically works? No, I think you've got it. But just to make sure we're on the same page. So if you reference a key that doesn't exist, then it, it is going to fail. So at least you have your test failure is going to let you know that you've referenced something that doesn't exist. But if you are referencing like if you want to override the default that Rails or I18N has provided for a model and say for an error message, if you reference that, but you want to override it, but then you've forgotten that does exist. So you're not going to get the failure, you're going to get a different message. So it's probably not a terrible experience for the user, it's not going to crash, they're going to see something, but they're not going to see the custom message that you intended them to see. Gotcha. Okay, well, just to name it, then that the, the thing that I was describing, I don't know that that would be the configuration for every system. So I would strongly encourage any system where IE10N just has a singular behavior, which is we fall back to the key. I want my test to absolutely tell me if that's happening, and that should be a failure of the test. But to the sort of discoverability documentation bit, I do wonder if tooling can actually help answer the question. And as I was describing the wonderful experience I had on GitHub the other day, like viewing code as just static characters in a file is both true and also uh, I think increasingly a limited view of it. We we have editors and we have code hosting tools that can understand semantically our code a little bit better. So I'm, there's got to be like 20 different VS code plugins that when you hover on an IETN reference, it will tell it will do the lookup for you. That feels like a thing that exists. And if it doesn't, well, now I've nerd sniped myself and I got a weekend project. JK, I'm definitely not building that this weekend. But um, that feels like can we use that to solve this? Um, maybe not, but that, that's just another thought of 
where we have these limitations where it's static, like those abstractions can be useful, but if we can very quickly dereference them, then the cost of the abstraction or that that separation becomes smaller and so the pain is reduced. And I wonder if that's a way to sort of offset it. If I can poke at that a little bit more, because I think you're touching on something that I haven't expressed or thought through explicitly, but it's the idea of like, why do I like the abstraction? Like, what is it that's drawing me towards using these keys? And I think it's because most of the cases, I don't care. Like, I, I don't care what the string is. And so that feels nice. Like, I understand that, yes, we're referencing something. If that key didn't exist, I'm going to see a failure. So I know that there's text there. And that's why I do lean into referencing the keys instead of the text is because it, it feels good to, to not have to care about that stuff. And if we do make changes to the text, then it suddenly doesn't fail. And then I have to go update a, a test because we added a period or added a comma. I think that's the that's the path of more sadness for me. And my goal is always a path of least sadness. So I think that's why I lean into it. <laughs> I'm guessing, is that the why you lean into it as well? Or what do you like about referencing the keys over the explicit text? No, I think I think I share your your inclination there and the reason that you're in favor of it. And I think the consistency, like if we're gonna use IE10N, then we should lean in because it's a it's a non-trivial thing to do. Like porting to IE10N, I see those projects and they're they're tricky. Getting it right from the first step is also tricky. Um, if you're gonna do it, then let's lean in and thus let's use that abstraction overall. But yeah, same ideas as you. Cool. I think that helps validate where I'm at in terms of how I rationalize about this, where ultimately I do like leaning into that abstraction. And as you'd mentioned, like some of those porting projects, I haven't been on one specifically, but I've seen that they they are a lot of work. And so if we have that in our system, then we want to continue to use it. It does reduce some of the readability. Like you said, maybe there's a VS Code plugin or some way that then we can help people be able to see if they want that full context in the test and not have to jump over to YAML. But yeah, otherwise, unless it's overriding default behavior or complex, then that's what I'm going to go with is with the keys. But I really appreciate this person's very like thoughtful question and approach to testing because normally or typically I fully agree with I, I want full context in the test. And this one was one of those outliers that came up for me and I had to really think through all the, the feelings and the reasons that I have for those feelings. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Mandy Moore. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes, as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me on Twitter at S. Vicari. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or you can reach us at host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.